0: Well, welcome to this pre-recorded meeting for our Calvary Evangelical Church in Brighton uh, for the 14th of June 2020, and we are just emerging from the lockdown with respect to the coronavirus. We are a church uh, who live in the area of Brighton in Sussex, UK. We are believers in Jesus Christ. We are uh, in number about 80 or so of us meeting together in Sunday mornings in normal times, And we're just ordinary people from different nations and different backgrounds. And we believe that God himself has brought us together to trust him, to know him, to love him and to serve him. And we're going to do our best to express that in this time together. So a particular welcome to you if you have just dropped in. Maybe looking for some spiritual guidance and comfort in this strange time that we're in and the first uh, 10 minutes or so I'll try and keep things very user-friendly for you Uh, and as we go on I'll be thinking of our more regular attenders but don't think that you have to tune out just because of that. My name's Philip Wells, I'm one of the team of elders here at Calvary. Uh, It's fair to say I've been here the longest uh, and I'll be leading this morning. Uh, Other notices will be seen on the screen or are available through emails that are circulated. Let me put on the screen uh, the plan. We're going to do the things that uh, Christians normally do. We're going to uh, uh, sing songs or have them sung to us, pray prayers, uh, have the Bible read and uh, talk about what the Bible is saying. And uh, today the theme is a very big theme, the theme of judgment and salvation. But uh, stay tuned and I'll explain more of that as we go along. This is part of a series of four talks based on the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapters 65 and 66 in the Old Testament. And uh, you'll find it really helpful if you can follow along the words for yourself when we get to that. So do make sure you have a copy um, either on your shelves or you can actually download it as a part of an, an app on your smart device. So let's begin by praying. Lord, you are the true and living God, even though we do not see you, we know that you are there, and uh, all this world around us has come from you, and we want to be in touch with the living God today. We don't want to be distant from you, but to know that we are close to you, and that you are with us, as you promise you will be. So draw near to us as we want to draw near to you. And uh, we pray that that will be true for every single person who is uh, in any way in touch with this broadcast. Um, And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I want to begin, actually, by looking at uh, a matter which is very important in thinking about Jesus and Christianity and the Bible. And uh, the question I'd like to look at is... Old Testament or New Testament? And to start us off, I have a, a brief clip as a reference when a very famous person was asked this question.
1: Very an Old okay. Testament
2: guy or New Testament? Guy? Uh, probably equal. I think it's just an incredible. The whole Bible is an incredible. I joke uh, very much so. They always hold up the art of the deal. I say my second favorite book of all time, but uh, I just think the Bible is just something very special.
0: So, what's the answer? Old Testament or New Testament? I'd like to take a few minutes to explain that in a way which, uh, for one reason or another, President Trump didn't feel at liberty to enlarge on when he was asked that question. So, I've got something to put up on the screen. Let me click it. The Bible is divided into two sections Uh, The first and biggest is called, by Christian publishers and printers, the Old Testament. And the second is called, the smaller section, uh, the later section is called the New Testament. And the names are there because they describe the contents in a way which I'll try and explain. Let me click. So firstly I should explain what a testament is. Uh, we use the expression "testament" in English when we say "last will and testament," meaning um, a will, uh, a written down set of wishes, uh, including gifts and generous uh, apportionments. In the Bible, the word is uh, the, the word is usually used with a, 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 the equivalent of covenant. That's a better English equivalent: covenant and a covenant. Is a relationship expressed in words spoken or words written down, and in, in the Bible, the covenants are written down. And a useful Western culture illustration would be the marriage relationship. So, according to the uh, prayer book, the relationship is expressed in these words I take you, XYZ, to be my wife, and I take you, ABC to be my husband. So the words make a particular sort of relationship and and in the case of a marriage it's a a relationship with particular privileges and responsibilities and particular bonds. And in in the case of marriage the bonds are that of committed faithful love and sex and actually legal and financial unity. So you enter that uh, relationship by means of the words that are solemnly and carefully spoken. So the Bible can be thought of as two covenants, a book of covenants. Now there are actually more than two covenants in uh, the Bible, but we're just going to think about two. And uh, the two in mind are organised around two people. And the two people are Moses, and uh, if you're watching from a Muslim background, that's Musa, and uh, and the second person is uh, Jesus. So if you're watching from a Muslim background, it'd be Isa. Uh, so I'm going to say three things about uh, this matter of uh, Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. Number one, both these covenants and all the other covenants in the Bible depend on God being a covenant-making type of God. That's to say, he binds himself in relationships using words. He is a God of his word. In other words, he doesn't say things and let people down. He doesn't promise things and then twist events or fudge things to let himself off keeping his promises. And this is actually a sort of love, and the Bible has a special word for this covenant, faithful love, Uh, English translation being something like steadfast love. And the relationship itself is uh, sometimes expressed in words like uh, these. Uh, I will be their God and they will be my people. And whereas uh, in our culture a testament or a covenant is usually signed in ink, the ancient covenant uh, was very often sealed with the death of an animal or animals. And this referred uh, to the agreed penalty For breaking the covenant. And uh, that death, there was something that both parties signed up and said, basically saying, Well, if I break this covenant, may this happen to me, what's happened to these animals. So there is actually nothing more safe and desirable than to be in a safe, steady, secure relationship with God who makes covenants. So I put up there, it's a relationship, it's based on words, and it gives security. God, the God of the Bible, is a covenant-making God. So let's put the uh, division there: Old Testament, New Testament. New Testament being the smaller, and it's uh, along this timeline with as uh, uh, Moses, a picture of Moses, and there is Jesus separ- signif- um, signified, symbolised by his cross. Let's think then of the Moses covenant. This covenant was brilliant but had a a double flaw. The brilliance is to do with its ethical and spiritual quality. There are many words surrounding the Moses covenant, but there are ten in particular, the ten words, or or we would say the ten commandments, which express in beautiful simplicity the duties of Moses' people towards God. And the words say things like this, Have no other gods has to do with faithfulness and exclusivity. Don't make up your own version of what God is like. And that has to do with a command against idol worship. And then there are commands like "Do not lie, do not steal, which are just essential for any human society. And as well as uh, these words, there was a complex system of sacrifices and priests and holy places, And that covenant was sealed with blood. So what was the major flaw? The flaw was that people were not good enough to keep the laws and the sacrifices weren't powerful enough to secure forgiveness for the failure of the people. And that just brings us back to the old problem with human nature, which we, in our culture, experience daily. It's called guilt and shame. And uh, the Moses Covenant showed that, but had no adequate solution for it. So let me come to the Jesus Covenant. And the Bible says uh, this, this new covenant with Jesus is better. And let me explain. The covenant that Jesus brought is remembered in uh, what we call the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion or in other words, the church service where people eat bread and wine. When Jesus set this up, he said that the bread symbolised his broken body and the wine symbolised his shed blood. And he said that his blood was the blood of the new covenant. So there is a relationship to be had with God through Jesus. And what about those flaws in the Moses covenant? In other words, the people not living as they should and the old sacrifices not being good enough to secure forgiveness. Well, in the Jesus covenant, it is all marvellously taken care of. Not only was there an agreed penalty for covenant breaking, but amazingly, one party, the innocent party, Jesus, voluntarily pays the penalty for covenant breaking. He took the blame and the shame and the penalty. So the covenant doesn't end up being irreparably broken, but the promises are kept, all the penalties are paid by God himself. And the New Testament writers say that this covenant is most certainly a better covenant. And I agree. And I invite you not only to agree, but to make every effort to get into that covenant yourself. You need to leave behind all other sources of security, spiritual security, whatever it may be, and rest yourself solely and simply on the promises that God makes through Jesus Christ. To turn away from the sins of our human nature and approach the covenant mediator, Jesus himself, personally. And I want to uh, invite you to do that. You could even do that just now. But uh, I'm going to leave that with you. And we're going to have uh, sung to us, or we're going to sing a wonderful psalm about what it is to be in covenant with God, who is the maker of heaven and earth. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. And we sung this before, but this is a remix version. We thank you that we can have our human lives based deep in you, that we can have security and relationship with you. We're going to sing uh, again. This is a song based on a psalm which talks about that relationship in this in these words. Psalm 90, a psalm of Moses. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What an amazing thought to have our roots and our home in the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. We're going to sing this to a um, a contemporary tune, uh, which may be unfamiliar. So there is one complete Instrumental verse first.
2: fans is show sure. A thousand ages in your sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night.
0: God our help in ages past our hope for years to come now as I was saying the central feature of the new covenant is Jesus himself and it's rather amazing but completely true that the the person the human being man or woman, boy or girl who approaches this Jesus uh, in prayer finds that he is not just a historical figure (coughs) excuse me Not just an ancient sage who said wise and wonderful things, but a living person to whom we can relate in person-to-person trust and love and real relationship. And this is beautifully expressed in the song Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And it's sung for us by Ruth with accompaniment from uh, Annika and myself. It's number 682 if you have the book. Jesus, lover of my soul. we're going to look at is the second half of Isaiah chapter 66 and Rosemary is going to read for us the whole chapter.
1: Isaiah chapter 66 reading from verse 1. This is what the Lord says heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool where is the house you will build for me where will my resting place be Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord? This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man, and whoever offers a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and their souls delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them, and will bring upon them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight, and chose what displeases me. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city, hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. Before she goes into labour, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a country be born in a day, or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labour than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm, and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, The Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens following the one in the midst of those who eat the flesh of pigs and rats and other abominable things, they will meet their end together, declares the Lord. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. On horses, in chariots and wagons, and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them, as the Israelites bring their grain offerings, to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels, and I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind.
0: Thank you for that reading. Now let's pray to God. O Lord God, we have heard great things about you, that you are the covenant-making God who gives and forms relationships solid and secure based on promises that you make that are unbreakable. We thank you for your solemn promises that you even bother with people like us to commit yourself to us in covenant. We thank you for every promise that you have made And we thank you that all those promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We come to you in adoration and thanksgiving. We come to you in confession that although you are so great and have been so good to us, we are so fickle and feeble. And um, we turn again and again to our own versions of God or our own sources of comfort instead of looking to you. And there is guilt and shame attached to that. But we thank you again for the one perfect sacrifice made for us by Jesus Christ, through which we have forgiveness of sins. And as we turn to you, we thank you again for the huge, enormous, wonderful, sin-covering power of the blood of Jesus Christ. We turn to you in thanksgiving. That even though we uh, live in this uh, lockdown type world, we have experienced things that uh, get to us really in terms of deprivation or, and, and loss of contact, yet we have much to be thankful for. We thank you, Lord, that many of us have been spared this virus and you have kept us safe. Thank you, maybe even somebody watching this has recovered from it. But we thank you for those of us who have experienced your safekeeping. We thank you for the wonderful weather we've experienced in past weeks. We thank you for people who have been around us, who have cared for us. And uh, we thank you for all the blessings of life and breath, health and strength that you give in so many ways to so many of us so much of the time. We come to you, Lord, to ask you. We ask you for those who mourn and are bereaved. We ask you for those who suffer suffer and under stress and anxiety and worry. May they find that you are the great burden bearer. And we ask you for our world, that our world might wake up to knowing that you are God and turn from all the unbelief and indifference and negligence and atheism and idolatry that uh, characterize our race and that we might turn to you and many people might have their hearts turned to you in salvation as they look to Jesus Christ. We pray this would be true of our world and of our nation and of our city and of the people known to us and even perhaps ourselves as we watch this just now. So show yourself to be a great and wonderful God, we pray. Help us too to hear your word just now and to absorb your word in its power and application and life-changing force. Help me to speak it and help us all to hear it. We pray our prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen. So now we're going to change gear and think about that passage that has been read to us. Well, we're going now to think about this remarkable and powerful passage in Isaiah 66. I've entitled it Judgment and Salvation. There are two instincts in the human heart that I want to latch onto at this point. The instinct for eternity and the instinct for justice. Eternity, the sense that we were made for more than just this life, that we were made for something better and grander, something that endures beyond this world. And maybe you've had an inkling of that when you've seen a beautiful sunset or looked at the stars or heard the mighty thunder and thought, there is more to this world Than this world, eternity. And the second instinct of justice, the idea that right and wrong are not simply empty accidents of evolution, but profound realities that go to the core of our being and the heart of the universe. Eternity and justice. Eternity looks beyond this life, and justice looks for a linkage, a moral linkage between good and evil, linked into the eternal future. And the Bible says that both these instincts are deeply true and gives names to the way God expresses himself in eternity and in justice. And I'm going to pick up on these two names, these two ideas of judgment and salvation. God's moral assessment, uh, his judgment and fair dealing and redemption. So, what is good will be rewarded in the future, even if it was overlooked in the present, and what is evil will be rewarded fairly and thoroughly in the future, even if it was overlooked in the present. Eternity and justice, judgment and salvation, heaven and hell. They're strong ideas. But the Bible is very strong on these themes and they run throughout the Bible from beginning to end. Jesus himself said, enter through the narrow gate that leads to life. For wide, not wise, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. He had in mind two destinations, if you like, heaven and hell. So it's not just an Old Testament thing. But we are in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the prophet Isaiah and he's been describing salvation. I use that word but he's been describing a home, a new heaven and a new earth. He's been describing judgment. He uh, uses the ideas of awful death, of destruction, corpses on a battlefield and so on. And Really, it's impossible to make sense of our lives now. It's impossible to make sense of our lives now without putting them in this eternal perspective. That's true of all of us, It's particularly to Christian people, of course. So uh, this is the last in this uh, series. We've been through Isaiah from beginning to end. Let's hear Isaiah one last time. And as we hear, let's be not hearers only but doers of the word. Or as Isaiah says in the chapter that we've had read, Isaiah 66, this is the one whom I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. A bit of trembling at God's word would do us no harm whatsoever. So let me just go through the context, which is what we've been doing before, Uh, These latter chapters could well have been written with the Babylonian exiles as the target audience, maybe in Babylon or maybe having just returned from Babylon. They are chapters of extremes. They emphasize the desperate need of sinners, the extremity of sin. Our offences are many in your sight, lament the, uh, the readers, 59 verse 12. The chapters emphasise the extreme nature of God's grace. Grace meaning God acting out of sheer one-sided kindness. Uh, appeal to God's grace, 64 one. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And uh, these chapters reach the high point of declaring the fullness of God's purposes. It's these chapters that say, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. What a great agenda God has for the future. So they present a radical view of God's future and astoundingly and tantalisingly, they include the Gentiles, non-Jews, as fellow heirs of the promises that actually belong to Abraham and his family. Well, these are the promises that spill out into all the nations. And uh, in Places like 60, verse 3, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So let's just have a quick look through the passage, watching it. It's a sort of collage, really, uh, of various pictures. There's actually quite a few animals in here. Pigs, rats, mules, camels, maggots. So just very quickly and visually, uh, we have the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind, he will bring down his anger with fury, his rebuke with flames of fire. So like a whirlwind, like flames of fire, God executing judgment uh, upon his enemies uh, with a sword. So we've got that there. And then uh, verse 17, that was verse 15 and 16, verse 17, those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens following the one in the midst of of those who eat the flesh of pigs and rats. So we have the gardens and uh, pigs. I've only drawn a roast pig, no rats there. And then we have uh, um, another picture of uh, Zion, uh, the mountain with God's city and God's holy hill. Uh, And uh, in verse 18, because of their actions and imaginations, I'm about to bring and gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and send some of them who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. And uh, it says, um, verse 20, they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. So there's the uh, glorious holy mountain, a lot about glory there. And here are people from the islands and uh, oh, I only drew a camel and they come to uh, the uh, my holy mountain and they bring offerings and some of them become priests and Levites. So uh, that's coming there. And verse 22, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before you sorry, endure before me, declares the Lord. So will your name and your descendants endure from one new moon to another and one Sabbath to another. All mankind will come and bow down before me. So uh, a new heaven and a new earth and uh, a new moon. And we have the 28-day cycle of the moon and we have the seven-day cycle of uh, when the Sabbath comes round, uh, reminiscent of uh, God's working week, when he made the world uh, in seven days and uh, the unceasing Sabbath with which he ended it. And then we have in verse 24, uh, another picture of dead bodies, those who rebelled against me. Uh, So I put some dead bodies and I put them on a rubbish heap, sort of smouldering away. Uh, And it says, Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched. They'll be loathsome to all mankind. So there's a pretty loathsome picture there of uh, burning and uh, maggot eating on bodies. Uh, So I've just gone very quickly through that. And it it seems to me to be about these two things, judgment and salvation. And uh, we'll look at those in turn, judgment and salvation. So let's ask, first of all, what is the judgment that's described here? Well, we looked at it and we'll just go back in a little more detail, a little slower. Verse 15, the Lord is coming with fire. His chariots are like a whirlwind. It's a a picture that has a lot to do with defeat in battle. Uh, So we've got the Lord coming with fire. We've got his chariots like a whirlwind. Uh, We have his strongly... Felt emotion there's several references to anger and fury and rebuke and judgment uh, it says in verse 16 with fire and with his sword the Lord will execute judgment and it says that there will be many slain by the Lord verse 16 so that's the picture there it's a gruesome vivid horrible picture. And no sensible person surely would want to aim themselves for that. No sensible person would want to aim themselves for that. It's God taking action against his enemies after centuries of patience. God says enough is enough and acts against his enemies No sensible person would want to put themselves in that firing line. The call and the application is very simple, isn't it? Stop being the Lord's enemy. Cease rebellion. Lay down your weapons. Stop fighting against him. Stop resisting him. Stop avoiding him. But go towards him. It's the only sensible thing to do to seek to make peace with him, to ask what his terms are and uh, to accept those terms. The Bible says that Jesus is the Lord's ambassador and those terms of peace are to be found in him and only in him. Come to me, he says. Here are the generous terms he offers to those who seek amnesty. In the old days of library books, people uh, the library used to offer an amnesty, all the library books that you'd forgotten to take back, and the fines had built up and up and up. There would be a day when you could uh, take the library books back in safety and there would be no charges. Well, Jesus says, if you come to me, all the charges will be dropped. This is the day. This is the day of salvation. Come to him. What is the judgment? Well there's a second picture at the end verse 24. They will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die nor will their fire be quenched. They'll be loathsome to all mankind. It's a picture of a perpetual rubbish dump. I remember when I used to take my morning walk in Sri Lanka when I was out in the uh, remote areas um, I would pass uh, villagers whose morning work was to chuck their rubbish over the fence and set fire to it. So uh, they would be burning off yesterday's rubbish. You could smell it as you walked along and it would smolder away and the rubbish would be visited by flies and perhaps infested by maggots. Uh, a rubbish dump, and that's exactly what we have here. This is a rubbish dump and it's got dead bodies on it. What a gruesome picture this is. Uh, and the on. Un- unnatural thing about this is that the the worm does not die the maggot doesn't die and the fire doesn't go out so it's a bizarre and very unpleasant picture and it's said that it's a uh, loathsome it's a picture which is repellent and disgusting loathsome to all flesh and uh, to be perfectly honest I, I would prefer not to be having to mention this but Uh, my master mentions it. Jesus says, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus says that in Mark chapter 9 verse 48, and he's quoting from here, isn't he? Quoting it with with approval. And according to Jesus, if we cling to our sin, we're actually consigning ourselves to the rubbish dump of eternity. And Jesus says, make every effort. And if it involves figuratively cutting off your hand to get rid of sin and not to be uh, clinging to sin. Because the destination of those who cling to their sin is this horrible, eternal rubbish dump. And I have to say, I find it impossible to state adequately or with sufficient feeling and uh, uh, engagement in my heart to state adequately the importance of escaping this judgment. Well, let God speak through his word. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into this hell. Don't go there. Don't go there. So what is the judgment we've looked at? Now, why is the judgment? What's the rationale behind it? Uh, what have people done to deserve this? Now, that's a very big question, and there are actually many answers in this book and many answers spread across the Bible. But uh, in, um, in verse 4 of this chapter, uh, God's complaint is that I called and no one answered. I spoke and no one listened. So there is uh, this sin of ignoring, you know, sometimes my phone goes off, Uh, quite often I miss it going off, sometimes it might go off and I think, am I going to ignore this? And God is on the phone and you can see it's him, don't ignore it, don't put the phone on silent, don't reject his call. And there are other reasons for judgment. Uh, in 58.3, there's this inhumanity to fellow citizens. You exploit your workers, he says, and, and God cares about that. Well there are many things like that. But in 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 this section, I'm looking at verse 17 where it says they consecrate those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens. Following the one who is in the midst of those who eat the flesh of pigs and rats and other abominable things, they will meet their end together, declares the Lord. I understand there's a few difficulties of translation there, but uh, there's certainly something about consecration, uh, making holy, purification, and gardens and pigs. So I'm sure you know this, but in the context uh, that I was, I was speaking in the Jewish context, eating pigs and rats would be, these are unclean animals. Uh, abominable, it's an abominable thing to do under the law of Moses. Uh, and that's what he's uh, talking about here. He's using picture language and symbolic language. Uh, so, this is not, in my understanding, a judgment against the traditional English be- breakfast. Um, there may be other objections to a traditional English breakfast, but I don't think this text is one of them. And neither is it an indication of judgment against Monty Don and um, gardening programs. It's not against gardeners. That's not what this text is about. But what it is doing is using the language of uncleanness. And uh, the gardens would presumably be sort of um, um, sacred gardens dedicated to some idol or... Um, place where you made little offerings. You see sort of things like that in, um, in India, don't you? Little uh, gardens or shrines dedicated to an idol. I think that's the territory we're in here. And he's using this language, uh, the language of uncleanness. So what's going on here? Well, I, I think what we have here is a complete reversal of God's ways. These people say, we're going to consecrate ourselves. We're going to make ourselves holy. We're going to make ourselves pure. And the way they do it is the complete opposite of what God says. They've got it absolutely, completely wrong. Pigs are unholy and impure. And the sacrifices that are made are not made in the authorised altars, but in these uh, holy garden places. And the people are saying, "We're, we're pursuing purity in our gardens by eating this food, which is actually unclean food. It seems to me that the target here is those who think they are progressing morality and ethics, but actually doing the exact opposite of what God, our Maker, has revealed and commanded. So down through history, people have done this. Uh, In in biblical history, uh, there are people who worship through the ministry of temple prostitutes. So that's taking sex... Uh, and uh, using sex as a sort of liberating technique, completely doing the opposite of what God has commanded, God gave sex for in faithfulness, and this is being used um, without faithfulness. Um, Sacrifice. In the Bible, uh, there are child sacrifices which are thoroughly condemned how can you take uh, an innocent, or well, innocent, a little infant and sacrifice that little life as if that would gain some traction with deity, as if that was uh, the right thing to do? Children treated as subhuman and expendable. Well, do you know, I think our, our culture does that with uh, children that are still in the womb. I know it's a controversial thing to say, but... Uh, the Christian church ha- has always insisted that unborn life is not to be used or scrapped or removed as if it's expendable and subhuman. It's uh, That's not progress. Or think of religion. Uh, using religion as a tool to gain power over God rather than submitting and accepting the grace that he freely offers Hmm, all of these
1: i don't know that one
0: thank you alexa all of these you're welcome all of these are methods um, which are the complete reversal of god's ways by the judgment Now, there is actually no salvation without judgment, and that's one of the things that uh, this book teaches very clearly. The route to salvation does not bypass judgment. Uh, In the narrative of Isaiah, he sees that uh, his city will be redeemed, but it won't be redeemed without going through judgment. So Israel was taught this lesson through her own experience. There was no return to the promised land without going through the judgment fire of the Babylonian exile. Well, that's the lesson she was taught. It was arguable whether she learnt it. Uh, it's certainly a truth that God does not en- offer anyone salvation without judgment. There is no shortcut to salvation without judgment. But what he does do is offer a substitute to bear the judgment instead of a substitutionary, sacrificial atonement. In other words, someone else gets attacked by God's fiery sword. Someone else gets put outside the camp as if rubbish. Someone else enters the realm of the dead as a corpse. But this someone else is someone of such virtue and nobility and innocence that he could not be kept under judgment paid the full price and rose from the dead gloriously, sin free, death free in righteousness and life. Well, who am I talking about? Leave you to work that one out. Number two. um, Let's look at salvation. So let's ask, what is the salvation? And we could three G's to this, couldn't we? Gathering, Gentiles, glory. We have it in verse 18. Uh, I will gather all nations and tongues and they will come and see my glory. Gather the Gentiles to see my glory. Verse 19, there's an outreach to the nations. I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survive To the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, to the Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal, to Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, they will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. On horses, in chariots, and wagons, and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them, as the Israelites bring their grain offerings, to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. So there's a bringing to the holy mountain and they will come bringing offerings and in fact themselves being an offering. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul saying that uh, his priestly work was to bring the, the nations, uh, foreigners, as an offering. It was a sort of liturgy, uh, uh, an offering to the Lord, the priestly work to preach the gospel and see men and women from different nations coming to Jesus Christ. And the offerings, uh, I'm sorry, the income has become an offering. Uh, some of them become priests and Levites. Well, this picks up many themes. The shining glory of Zion. Uh, the future glory of zion and the dawning of the present glory of zion jesus saying let your light so shine that people will see your good works and glorify your father in heaven he says that in matthew chapter 5 verse 14 there's a present glory it's it, it's a dawning glory it's not a full glory but there's a present a present glory of zion And uh, the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, um, you shine, you shine like stars as you hold out the word of life. There's something glorious uh, about Christians and Christian churches and the gospel and gospel communities, even as they are now. And there's a theme of the gathering in of the Gentiles. Often in the Old Testament this is by means of attraction, so they just get attracted to the holy mountain. But here uh, there's uh, something more proactive, isn't there? They're sending out, I will send some of them who survived to the nations, and uh, they, they bring back uh, the, uh, the uh, those from among the nations who get to, who, who, who are responsive to that invitation. Of course, Jesus expressed that, didn't he? Go, go into all the world and preach the good news. There's something going about the gospel. It isn't just waiting for other people to come in. There is a, a proactiveness about the uh, New Testament grace. Go into all the world. Uh, it's truly Christian to be proactive going out together, rather than waiting for people just to come in. There is an attractiveness to the gospel, but that's not all there is to it. And we've only got half the story. If we just sit and wait, we need to be proactive. And uh, what is the salvation? Well, continuing this theme, uh, a new heavens and a new earth. And I'm now looking at verse 22. A new heavens, as the new heavens and the new earth that I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. The new heavens and the new earth will endure. And so will the inhabitants. Your name and your seed will endure. A new environment and a new population to suit that new environment. But well, we're not there at the moment. We're told about it. We have to use our imaginations. We don't. We can't possibly understand it as it really is. But here it's portrayed to us as a complete new universe, a new heavens and a new earth. And we're told from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Something, uh, a, a new humanity, a, a new, um, yeah, a new humanity, a new race of people uh, who worship before the Lord. Uh, it's not only a s- uh, space. There's time here. Sun and moon uh, govern the day and the the night. And it says in Genesis that they mark off the seasons and the days and the years. In other words, uh, they give time uh, variation and significance. Not not all time has the same significance. Some has some significance. Other periods of time have other significance. And uh, God has given that to to as it were, impregnate time with uh, fruitfulness. So not only are we shown that space is holy and filled with God, but also time is holy and filled with God. From one new moon to another and one Shabbat, one Sabbath to another. Well, time, big subject. Christians begin to sanctify time now time is a christian thing now make uh, redeeming the time says the apostle paul make every opportunity he says uh, so we shouldn't let the phrase the lord's day which is used just that once in revelation 1 verse 10 blind us to the fact that actually all days and all time belongs to the lord it's all his all of time is his and though we have seasons to uh, serve him in particular ways. For example, gathering is a very important thing. We're commanded not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. And we're also um, expected to go into our room and close the door and pray uh, individually uh, and to meditate on God's word, all of those things. But every hour belongs to him. And so if you're at home feeding the kids, or attempting homeschooling, or uh, washing the dishes, or doing the garden. Uh, It's all done for him. Even now, all time belongs to the Lord, and we're to take it and sanctify it from one new moon to another and one Sabbath to another, if you like. But let me just add one more thing here. What's the reason that we're given time? But well, we're given time to prepare for the great future day. That's why we have time. That's why God doesn't close it down now and bring in the new new world. He's given us these moments, uh, the moments of our days, the years and months and days and hours, so that we would seek him. And the writer to the Hebrews says, look, there is a rest coming, Um, a Sabbath, a Shabbat thing, since the promise of entering his rest still remains. Let's be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it, he says. Don't miss the opportunity. There are two destinations, uh, a heaven and a hell. Don't end up in that hell be careful. Make every effort. Be diligent not to fall short. It's there for the asking. Don't fall short. There's a hell to avoid at all costs, and there's a heaven to be gained. And only a fool would fail to make every effort to get to Zion. Leave no stone unturned in their quest to find the way to God's heavenly city. And the claim of Jesus, which I believe, and there's many good reasons to believe him, the claim of Jesus is this is exactly what he will do for whoever comes to him. That's the end of our time in Isaiah. Jesus is the one who can bring us safe to the heavenly city. May he do that for every single person who's been listening to this and may no one fall short of it. Amen. Well, we thought about those solemn things and they are solemn things and I hope it was helpful. I really do hope that in, in a very deep sense. Maybe if you are a believing Christian in encouraging you and uh, reminding all of us the things that are important that we ought to have our eyes on. Uh, Perhaps you've trembled at his word and uh, there's a blessing, isn't it, that God dwells with the one who trembles at his word. Maybe the covenant promises of God for his servants have excited you with their goodness. I hope so, and moved all of us to draw nearer to him. Or maybe the awfulness of the opposite prospect that was in those verses has scared you into the arms of God. God is strangely humble. You know, we we ought to come to him because he is so superbly good. But he will welcome us with open arms, even if we come out of fear of the opposite. So this is the last opportunity, for a while at least, to hear what the Lord is saying through the prophet Isaiah. We, we started it, oh, I don't know how long ago, and it's been a long journey for us as a church, but a, a, a wonderful one. I, I really, myself, have appreciated the opportunity and the privilege, really, of serving you by going through uh, this wonderful book and uh, sharing it with other people. I had a really good time sharing this in Sri Lanka, yeah, you may remember, um, some months ago. Well, in a moment, we're going to play out with another very Jesus-centred song, which uh, Maria going to lead us in. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Uh, set again to a contemporary tune. Um, and thanks to Maria for doing the main vocals on this. So that that's what will play us out. And uh, let me say a prayer as we finish. Lord, how we thank you for a new and better way, the new and better covenant, and the great mediator of the new covenant. We thank you for the hope set before us, the hope that doesn't lead us into the temple or the tabernacle, but into heaven itself. May Jesus Christ, our great Saviour, bring us all safely home. And now may grace and mercy and peace be with each one of us, through God, who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, now and for evermore. Amen. We're going to play out with uh, 325 Oh the deep, deep love of Jesus and uh, until we uh, meet again it's goodbye from me. Bye bye.
3: Oh the deep, deep love of Jesus For some measured boundless free
1: Rolling
3: as a mighty ocean, in its fullness over me, under. Jesus spread his praise from shore to shore, how he came to pay a ransom through the saving cross he bore, how he watched all oh, his loved ones, go to die. ¡Vamos!